0: On this stellar episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 77 and 78 from 1983.
1: Stuntman Tim Colberston tells us what it was like to portray one of Khan's henchmen.
0: Bert Bruce offers his sobering thoughts on Nicholas Meyer's day after...
1: Troy Mippians reminisces about the FASA Star Trek Klingons role-playing game. Buck well, and Trevor fill us in on the details of the USS Reliant.
0: Bob Turner and Kelly Casto flashback to 1963.
1: Andrew McLaughlin and Doug Kramer compare the Wrath of Khan to New Trek.
0: Plus Hamilton plates.
1: The computers of 1983. And more on this episode of
0: Star Pod Trek.
1: Greetings and felicitations.
0: Hip hip, hoorah! Tally ho.
1: Hey cutie pie.
0: Hey puddin'. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora.
1: If this is your first time listening to us, welcome.
0: We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication.
1: On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago
0: but we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Star Pod Log.
1: Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of StarLog magazine.
0: If you would like to comment on the subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode.
1: Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app, and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews.
0: Feel free to join our Facebook group too.
1: Starlog magazine issue number seventy seven. Cover date December 1983. Log Entries. Latest news in the worlds of science fiction and fact. Star Trek Braves Obstacles on The Search for Spock.
0: Star Trek 3 The Search for Spock began production on august fifteenth with the familiar cast and crew reunited under producer Harf Bennett and director Leonard Nimoy. Even before the cameras started rolling, circumstances have made this sequel anything but the typical movie.
1: So it goes on to say about how Christy Alley asked ten times the salary she earned in Star Trek II, whereas Robin Curtis, a 27-year-old from New York, has been hired instead to play Saavik. After an intensive casting search, Curtis appeared previously on *Ghost Story*, *Knight Rider*, and this is her first major role. We've heard that before—that she demanded more money than the studio felt she was worth.
0: Yeah, it's hard to believe Kirstie was asking for that much. Now, now, even though I did read somewhere that that she really intended to negotiate—you know, like ask for a high for a high amount and then negotiate it down—but. But yeah, but whatever it was, she wanted. They they were unwilling to pay.
1: And I guess they really weren't in in the mood for negotiating. They're like, here here's what you made last time. We might give you a bump, a four percent raise or something, but we're not playing this back and forth game. We don't have time for this.
0: Yeah, and and it's sad too because I really liked her better than than Robin Curtis.
1: I, I don't hate Robin Curtis by any means, but when I first saw her, I was like, uh, that's she looks so different.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean. She looked different, and she played the part so different.
1: Very differently, yes.
0: And and also, when we're looking back now, and we see all the merchandise from 2, and they they really tried to to push Kirstie Alley's and And I don't think that... Well, of course, there wasn't as much publicity for the third movie anyway.
1: And in recent, that recent, like, just before she died interviews... She goes on to say that she did not ask for that much, that everything was a misunderstanding. So, h- who knows?
0: Yeah, but I mean, see, she had such a great career anyway.
1: Her career, just when she went, went on Cheers, that was huge for her.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: But Robin Curtis, we still see her at conventions, and she is a wonderful person. And she still lives in upstate New York. And she she's happy doing what she does. So good for her. Yeah,
0: she's not acting anymore. No. She's in real estate now. Yeah. But still does cons and she is a nice person.
1: Star Trek Hamilton plates. Now, this was a craze of the 19 early 1980s especially. Are these keepsake items that you'd find in especially in Hallmark stores or like gift shops? I remember going to – my my mother had a friend in high school who had a brother that was obsessed with Elvis. And we'd go over her house, her, her essentially her mother's house, and they still had a lot of stuff there. And I remember seeing these Elvis collector's plates hanging up. And they had Gone with the Wind collector's plates, Wizard of Oz collector's plates. But in 1983, the Hamilton Collection, which was known for making just collectibles, not necessarily sci-fi – But they created the Star Trek Crew Collection, a series of plates with matching mugs. I mean, we still drink out of the mugs regularly.
0: Oh, yeah, I love the mugs. I mean, we drink hot beverages a lot. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but the plates you can't eat off of. They're simply to collect and look at.
0: Right. And, And so, as you said, those plates were a big thing back then. You know, I never really well, – of course, in my area, I, knew, I never knew anyone that had them, but I saw the ads all the time. I think the ads were even in regular magazines for Star Trek. All
1: the time. They, they would have ads in TV Guide, like national publications, because Hamilton was, was a major operation for just selling collectibles, porcelain yes. mainly. Yes, right? right.
0: And the one for, for Spock was the one they advertised the most, the, the picture of him with his arms folded. I mean, that mm-hmm. plate, I just saw that picture everywhere.
1: True. So let's break down. Which plates and cups did they make?
0: They made Scotty, Spock, Kirk, McCoy, Uhura, Sulu, Chekov, Bemis Down Scotty, and the USS Enterprise.
1: Yeah, Bemis Down Scotty I use as my shaving mug for my shaving brush.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> There's still, I mean, yeah.
1: these things are made in such high volume, you could still find them as low as $5 at conventions, believe it or not. And the price around this time. Was anywhere between twenty and thirty dollars.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So I mean, and I know you you do still see them now. I still see them for sale at a lot of cons. Yeah, you can always find them.
1: Even in an episode of Lower Decks, they had to make fun of it.
0: Oh yeah, that was <laughs> funny.
1: <laughs> the official price guide to Star Trek and Star Wars collectibles. It's a tiny little book, smaller than a paperback. What do you think about this?
0: It would have been neat to have it.
1: Believe it or not. That is the original one you, you have in your hand right now. That's the original one that I had as a kid that my grandfather bought from me at the Amity Newsstand in New Haven, Connecticut.
0: Okay, so by the time of 1983, there were lots of Star Trek and Star Wars collectibles out there.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, I'm looking at some of this stuff, and it would it has like a section, jewelry. Admiral's rank pin. Price range, $2 to $4. Belt buckle. Black with painting, embossed enterprise and lettering Star Trek in blue background. Price range three to five dollars. You just go all different sections: sell, cells, and stills cards. And they list it has a checklist, a little box so you could check off your trading cards as you collected yep. them.
0: So nothing was really um, that valuable at the time, was it?
1: If you look at some of the stuff from the '60s, it definitely was. I mean, you're flipping through right now the, the trading card page. That was an interesting one because those those early trading cards, people were buying singles of them. Okay, yeah, something
0: from the 60s, yeah. But, and uh, but, the Mego yeah.
1: dolls were super collectible at that time.
0: Because at this time, the merchandise wasn't really that old.
1: But it was still harder to find, and there was no internet. Like, we would go to garage sales, we'd go to flea markets, always looking for things because you just couldn't find it. It wasn't. It was never as mainstream, right? As, yeah, it's as hard other to find. properties.
0: I mean, probably going to cons, you, you could have yeah, found stuff. Yeah, at
1: convention. It wasn't until the '90s that Star Trek truly became mainstream as far as toys and collectibles. But, I mean, look at some of these things in here: Star Trek Mego Corporation Doctor McCoy Bones in Blue with Phaser, eight inches. Price range fifteen to seventeen dollars. Alien action figure, Migo Corporation, the Gorn, costumed in white robes. Posable, eight inches, fifty to a hundred dollars. Boy they got that wrong. I mean there, there's uh, Well, flaws gorn in here too. a white robe,
0: though. <laughs> <Yeah. I> mean,
1: <laughs> <laughs> then they put mugato costumed in yellow jumpsuit, long bald head. That wasn't the Mugato. That was the Telosian.
0: Right, yeah, which didn't really look like the Talosian on the show, <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah, we uh, this, know that this doll. This is the type yeah. of
1: guy just to look at is, is fun. And it has a whole list of fanzines here as well. This is the type of book, if you're a Star Trek collector, definitely need it just, just for laughs. And, but it does have some legitimate history there, especially under fanzines.
0: Okay, yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't have prices for fanzines. It's just got, um, an address and the name, the name of a publisher or a person. They've got Epilogue with Jean Laura. And it's got an address, which I guess was her address at the time.
1: Awesome stuff. I remember getting this in 83 and just looking at it for hours. Dreaming about having some of this stuff.
0: Oh yeah, I I would have too. It's, yeah, it looks very interesting.
1: And it even has a section on how to build a collection. And I took this seriously. I looked at it and I'd say, wow, I, want, I, I dream of being a better collector. There's this... Guy that had a collectible comic book and collectible shop called Stan. The guy's name was Stan. And, and I was like, I want to be like him when I get older. I want to, I want to amass this amazing collection. (laughs) (laughs) These are the big dreams that I had.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, having a collection, I mean, that, that's what the fans want.
1: DC Comics released Star Trek number one during this time period, the end of 1983. Love the fact that it's a George Perez cover. It's striking. Interview articles in Amazing Heroes related that they had full license to do anything in the Star Trek universe. Which Gold Key and Marvel, the previous license holders for the comics, they weren't allowed to do.
0: Yeah, and maybe that had to do with Paramount, you know, finally figuring out that they just... Need the comic book writers to have to have carte blanche because yeah because having them limited meant that they just couldn't write write good stories and the comics didn't sell as well.
1: And I love the fact that DC pulled out a full page ad right here in Starlog magazine advertising as such, which is fantastic that they they realized that DC had to do what Marvel did. Marvel actually producing the Star Wars comic saved the company from bankruptcy. DC needed to tap into these licenses and branch out to comic readers that didn't even know they liked comics. Because for many, comic books were all about superheroes. But now they're reaching out more into the sci-fi area and movies and TV programs, which is an awesome idea.
2: The Great
3: Bird of the Galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said,
4: Star Trek was about ideas. It was about tolerance on a galaxy-wide scale. It was an affection for life forms, whatever they looked like. Because they're different doesn't mean they're necessarily ugly or wrong.
5: Starpod Trek, exploring Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future.
0: Now we're going to talk to Tim Culbertson. He was known as one of Khan's henchmen in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan.
5: Welcome to the show, Tim. Good afternoon. All
1: right, so tell us, how did you get involved in The Wrath of Khan?
5: Well, I got involved in a Wrath of Khan by uh, my agent calling me who was with Players Management and said that they were looking for guys that were active. Uh, actually, since I was one of the few stuntmen that they had interviewed because I'm at that time like 6'4 and weighed 200 and, eh, eight or ten pounds. And uh, so went down on an interview and there was probably about... 15 or 16 people that sort of fit their bill. And uh, they talked to us a little bit and then took three of us uh, from that choosing there and uh, said, you are our guys that are going to be doing uh, some of the physical work in this show, and it's going to be called Star Trek. It's so, oh, yeah, we've seen it before, da-da-da-da, you know. And uh, so since it was just the second one, because they'd done the movie, excuse me, they'd done the movie before, and um, I also was in that, Star Trek 1 also, but uh, I wasn't seen because when you're doing stunts and things like that, you're not seen, or you are seen, but who is that, you know, or falling or get beat up or whatever, I think a lot of people, if you see a Fall of people as somebody's trying to push their way down an escalator. We've seen it in all these movies. So every one of those people that get knocked down or pushed aside or whatever was a stunt person. It wasn't just somebody, a passenger here or there. They paid a paid stunt performer and stunt performers get paid as a day player. Same thing as an actor who would speak lines. And then you also get monies as the stunt you're doing. So you get your day player plus stunt. And we do get residuals just like an actor. And so I work both in front and behind the camera on those or in front of the camera and hidden because I did stuff with Gary Busey and Nick Nolte and and uh, Chuck Connors. Uh, so did a variety of those things. I did lots of television shows like Heart to Heart. And I was in um, Love Boat and lots of other different things. Did a lot of uh, 13 Laverne and Shirley's and a couple of happy days. So it was a sweet gig for you working on the Rathacon. Yes, it was. It was very interesting to the fact is is that didn't know for sure how long we were going to work. So it was one week, two weeks, three weeks, and almost the the full four weeks that we were there. And, uh, of course, at the end, uh, per se, at the end of the show... Uh, get all blown up, but I don't think that they had even shot a lot of the other stuff yet because in continuity, you don't shoot uh, like, okay, here's day one, day two, day three, day four, and that's it like in the movie. uh, For your listeners to know is that in a 8 to 12-hour day, you only get two minutes on the screen. So if you're going to get two minutes, that means, oh, wait a minute we have to shoot three months or sometimes more to get the full movie. Whereas I don't understand it in some ways because movies of the week and things like that that are hour, hour and a half long, they can shoot those in two and a half or three weeks. So I think there's some money here or there that comes to play. You know, I guess that's about it. But when we were on the set, Ricardo, Mr., uh, Montabon was so nice and and worked with everybody, and uh, with Nicholas Meyer, would you okay? You want this or I'd like that? I bet we shot the scene of him taking off his hat or his his headgear probably five times, and he didn't want to. They didn't want to mess up the hair and to have him all come in at at one thing, when he says "con," you know, and so they, we shot that, and then also the picking up of him when he reached out and grabbed him and picked him up. Well, the readers or your listeners uh, would know that there was actually a wire attached to the back of him, and that the, their two crew members were had leather gloves on and handles and pull and hit, free went up and. Of course, some of the shots at first were kind of shaky, and no, 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 no. Until they got it right, uh, they didn't do that, and so it was, it was good in that way. So a lot of little things here and there. Well, m- most of the viewers of Wrath of Khan will recognize you as the one who was restraining Captain Tyrell. Yes, uh, was that? And then uh, on the bridge, uh, I'm on the left hand side. Uh, and I'm the guy that actually hits the button when he says fire. But the funny thing is, they do an insert of that. And it's the wrong hand. And it's also somebody that has a, a like a bracelet on or something. So... You know, I, I don't know whose hand that was, and those are called inserts. So they hire somebody to come there, and so they're thinking, oh, the, the lady, the navigator, and the other people are up there, so they must have fired it. No, I, you see me get like I'm hitting it, and then they do a close-up, and it's somebody else's hand and stuff like that.
0: How was it working with the Reliant Navigator, Laura Banks?
5: Well, I think that for any man... Hey, what's wrong with having three or four beautiful ladies hanging around, you know? And, and especially, they weren't dressed clothingly. <laughs> uh, it was great time. Uh, uh, I didn't know uh, the girls before. We met and we talked and became friends on the set and, and things like that. So it was It was enjoyable. Uh, it was eye candy for us as that here we all, all us men dressed in these little furry things or it's just this strange thing in that way. But anytime we have an accoutrement of lovely ladies hanging around, it's all worth it as well as intellectual. Well, thank you for joining us, sharing some memories of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, arguably the best Star Trek movie ever made. I ended up doing about 150 television shows and 38 movies. And, and I worked with uh, Chuck Norris when we did Eye for an Eye, uh, doing Battlestar Galactica, Blade Runner. I worked with uh, Six Million Dollar Man. I did Bonnie Woman. I I was on Laverne and Shirley for 13 shows. Oh, matter of fact, the funny thing about that was is that uh, on Laverne and Shirley, it seems like I always got Laverne because Shirley would always get the captain of the ship or this, that. I was the, uh, on one episode, I was the leader of the Purple Fiends on the uh, Laverne and Shirley show. And then another time, uh, I was the sailor that had the, the dance that sort of the tattoo of the lady on my stomach. So I sort of made it, it dance and stuff. And Laverne got me and Cindy got the, uh, the captain of the ship. But now about 16 years later, after doing that, I remet Cindy Williams. And four years later than that, we dated for 20 years and, uh, she just passed away on February 25th, and I was still with her at that time. And she was a lovely, wonderful lady. But anyway, I did lots of shows, uh, and I'm here, there, and almost everywhere. I appreciate all the, uh, the people that enjoy the Star Trek's, enjoy our sci-fi pictures that I've made. I was a Cylon in Battlestar Galactica. So I really appreciate all that stuff. And I appreciate you guys doing this interview and especially we can appreciate the listeners in there. So I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you for asking me to do this because I have not done something like this in 40 years. I just haven't done these things and, and I'm glad and uh, willing To give this bit of information out to your listeners.
1: Alright, right now we're opening up this guide from 1983. Cable Today. America's Cable Guide. On the cover it shows Kirk and Spock in TMP uniforms. But it says Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And it's actually a guide that tells you about all the movies that are coming on. On the various premium channels that were available in cable. And this is one of the reasons... Why we've seen Wrath of Khan so many times. I mean, there was a point where easily I was watching it every day. How about you?
0: Yeah, I did too. When my parents had that, I mean, it was great to just watch it on TV and, you know, (laughs) and watching the movie over and over. Oh, it was, I was awesome back then.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's the fun thing about looking at one of these old cable guides is you see the other movies, you see the regularity and what they did for Wrath of Khan and they called it Star Trek 2 PG. So he put the ratings in there by all by all the movies, and he realized that they rotated it constantly. So one day it would be on at two o'clock, another day it would be on at five o'clock, another day it'd be on seven o'clock, another day it'd be on nine o'clock in the morning. The pattern seems to be twice a day. So this was in heavy rotation. This movie
0: I used to watch it all different times, I, and yeah, and of course I and I I always kept a little guide close by so that i would know when it was coming on yeah
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) we were just so excited because our family had just gotten cable at that time i know that cable was more popular in the south it took some time for it to be like mainstream in new england because you had it for a number of years previous to this right
0: Uh, i mean as far as regular cable yeah yeah my parents always had cable
1: see we didn't we just had like the five channels or six channels that came in with the antenna 83 might have been the year that we got cable
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. Since you mentioned it, yeah, like the three, the three channels. Yeah, they had that. Yeah, the three three and four channels. channels, Right. Then
1: we had UHF channels. We got PBS. Depending on the weather, you get channel fifty-six. My grandfather would get different channels than my parents because even though he lived fifteen minutes away, there was a like a we called it a mountain, but it's not technically considered a mountain. But it was depending on which side of the mountain you're on. Uh, But other movies. That were in heavy rotation during this time included the Sword and the Sorcerer, Fraggle Rock, Conan the Barbarian, Excalibur, Clash of the Titans, Staying Alive.
0: Yeah, Staying Alive must not have done well if they had it. It, it, that it was on real there the fast. same year it came out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: And also it has a section for WTBS, Atlanta Superstation, which it was amazing. It was the first, they called it a superstation because it was the first television station to go via satellite. So people around the world could watch Atlanta programming. So you took it for granted because you already had TBS in your area.
0: Yeah, we had TBS for a long time. And yeah, they I mean, I, I remember watching Star Trek on that channel when they had it five days a week.
1: I try to tell people, like people say, like I don't understand why older people were considered older people. I don't understand why older people like Star Trek so much. I was like, Do you realize how often this thing was on? <laughs> if you combined, in my area in New England, we had it on the TOS on the Boston station and the New York station, and then you couple this with Con being on twice a day, you're inundated with Star Trek.
0: Yeah, it it was on a lot. So,
1: 1983, still chock full of Wrath of Khan goodness.
2: Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. Let's use the slingshot effect to go back in time and flashback 20 or so years ago to 1963. It's actually three years before Star Trek
3: premieres. Gene Roddenberry has a show on the air called The Lieutenant starring Gary Lockwood and Roddenberry will use Lockwood again in a pilot for his next show,
2: but that's a few years away yet. That's right. And Gary Lockwood is not the only person Gene Roddenberry will bring, bring back for Star Trek. Uh, also involved with the Lieutenant are Gene Coon, who is showrunner, Major Barrett, Leonard Nimoy, Nichelle Nichols, Walter Koning Ricardo Montalban, James Gregory, and some of these names you might not know, but he played Inspector Frank Luger on Barney Miller. Yes. Uh, Vic Tayback, and we'll just call out his a little bit of his information. He was Mel on Alice. Um, yep. But he had the best name in all of Star Trek. Jojo Krakow. Jojo Cracco. I'm a piece of the action. Yes. Uh, and Paul Comey, who you might never have heard the name, but he played a very important role of Lieutenant Styles in one of my favorite uh, Star Trek episodes, Balance of Terror. Absolutely. And you might have noticed that missing from that
3: list is William Shatner. But you know what? He's out there working, and his star is rising in 1963. He has the starring role in a TV movie about Alexander the Great. And he also guest stars on shows such as 77 Sunset Strip, Route 66, Channing and the Doctors, or excuse me, Channing, comma, and the Doctors and the
2: Nurses. I almost shoved all of that together. (laughs) <laughs> he, he was in a lot before what? Star Trek. Uh, but if you don't remember anything, you've got to remember him for his Twilight Zone episode entitled Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Yeah. That, spooky. Yeah. That was awesome. Leonard
3: Nimoy is also busy at this time. He has guest appearances on Daniel Moon. Daniel Boone was a man. He was a big <laughs> man. Perry Mason, This Is The Life, General Hospital, Dr. Kildare, and one of my favorites, The Man from Uncle. Yeah.
2: Well, we also have to remember Mr. Miracle Worker himself, James Doohan, Uh he showed up in a few th- different things as well, including episodes of Hazel, The Gallant Men, Going My Way, The Wheeler Dealers, Bonanza, and he was also in The Twilight Zone. Gene Roddenberry finds out that his show, The Lieutenant,
3: will not be picked up for a second season. But that's okay, because he's already working on a new series idea. This new concept will allow him to write about controversial topics that never get airtime in the early 1960s. But he's confident. He's going to get away with that because he's going to wrap this show in
2: science fiction. And he'll use concepts from previous pitches or shows or ones he's always uh, tried to get approved. This includes the idea of the show being based on a ship, which he's actually suggested for Hawaii Passage.
3: Or using a character based on the literary figure of Horatio Hornblower. He read those books as a a youth and and loved them. And he also has an idea of using a multiracial crew. And, of course, that idea came from an earlier idea that he pitched for an airship show that had a multiracial crew.
1: Now, we are role-playing gamers. That is a game where there's no board per se, but each player takes on the persona of a different character. When you mention role-playing gaming to the average person, the first thing they're going to think of is
0: Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Huge popularity, especially it has a renaissance because of Stranger Things.
0: It was the first mainstream role-playing game.
1: Oh, totally! And and this was the era, 1983. It was at its peak. The D and D red box was in Toys R Us. The all the advanced D and D manuals were in Walden Books and every bookstore you can think of. Satanic Panic era, but fasa a role-playing game corporation decided to take on the Star Trek franchise and produce Star Trek the role-playing game which we regularly play with a group of friends 1983 marked the year where this game was released what do you love about playing the Star Trek role-playing game
0: I mean the fact that you get to create your own character and you you have a Star Trek adventure the and the you know reading the uh, the guides it's all very you know it They're so creative. They created their own um, history, background, and setting. But but it still fits within the canon of Star Trek at the time.
1: Well, that's the curiosity. Up until this point, the only information that we got on Star Trek that is on screen was three seasons of the original series, two seasons of the animated series, the motion picture, and it was straddling at that point of... The Wrath of Khan. You know, the producers of this game started in 1982. So obviously they could go deep into the Wrath of Khan era. That lore. But everything else. They started creating their own line of ships. Their own financial situations. On how characters would get paid. They were exploring the different worlds. That we only sometimes only got to see one episode of. Of characters. Two episodes of characters. They were able to fully flesh out the Klingons. The Klingons based on on just a few episodes but having a, a huge backlore of them. And John M. Ford, who famously was a Star Trek writer as as well as other writers uh, other science fiction work, he was even involved in this project. What do you especially appreciate about the lore that's built up in the Star Trek role playing game guidebooks?
0: The the way they developed um like like the Romulan War, a lot a lot of stuff that that the show just really didn't have time to touch on, and they, they developed the the Orion Society and a whole background for the the Orions.
1: I absolutely love what they did with Orions. Yes, these are these are races that we hardly saw on screen, but reading about them makes them even more interesting. So you mentioned that we play a different different games and different scenarios in the 1983 box set. You get three scenarios in there: Ghost of Conscience. Again, Troublesome Tribbles, and In the Presence of My en- Enemies. So these are actually three adventures that you could play. What did you think about Ghosts of Conscience?
0: It, it was an interesting story. I mean, I mean, I like how they they make it a sci-fi story, and they make it something that could have happened on the show.
1: Exactly. So your team has to go on a derelict ship that was phasing in and out. So people were phasing in and out. actually had a tie-in to the Tholian Web. So if you watch Star Trek, this is almost like a sequel. It's essentially a choose-your-own-adventure. How would you handle this situation? Again, Troublesome Tribbles has to deal with going on a planet. That actually gives us the origin of why, where Tribbles came from and how they're being spread around the galaxy.
0: Yeah, it, it was neat. That, yeah, the way the story turned out, and it seems like the, the Klingons didn't come in until the end, right? So so that was neat to have that and, and the way you, yeah, the way they developed the story of the Tribbles, because at the time we didn't know the history of the Tribbles.
1: The third adventure included in the box set, in the presence of my enemies, actually had the players on a Klingon ship. And the box set includes blueprints of the Enterprise and the Klingon D seven. And you look at the details of these blueprints and they are so awesome.
0: Yeah, that was a fun adventure too.
1: Tell us about your character that you created. For Star Trek role playing game.
0: So I'm a Cation, and that is the species that was introduced on um, the animated series. So it's a race of these cat like people. So I'm a male Cation, a science officer.
1: You know, and I actually moderate the game, I'm the game master, and I love the fact that the game is not like Dungeons and Dragons, that you're just out there to hunt for gold and kill monsters there's a lot of cooperation, puzzle solving, reasoning. The game feels more like Star Trek than it does a standard role-playing game.
0: Yeah, this one is is in space. It's usually on a ship or a station or even a planet. And I mean, I mean just like the series, there, there's so much you can do with it, but you, you know, you're on a mission or and you usually have to figure out something, a mystery to solve. And we've had like characters, like characters on a planet that you had to be diplomatic with or negotiate with, and we've had alien encounters, so ha- having to deal with aliens, having to deal with with a crew, and you've got so you you know like we've got all our other characters that we play with, and we have to work with them, and you use each other's own talents. If there, there's an engineer and there's a doctor and there's um, you know a helmsman, so and we all use our own skills in the, in the game.
1: And this is, like to me, to have a group of players to play on a regular basis is a dream come true. Because when I was a kid and I saw this on the shelves, I didn't know anybody to play with. There were kids at school that would play Dungeons & Dragons, but nobody had the Star Trek box set. The Star Trek box set was so radically different because it wasn't just murder hobos it wasn't just killing people there was a lot of dialogue involved in it and so i know others in our group have expressed the same thing like wow i wish we could find people that could play it i've been looking for something like this for 40 years now which i am so pleased with highly recommend any of our listeners checking out the star trek fossa role-playing game there's a current role-playing game out that's well that's popular star trek adventures from modifius Star Trek role-playing really helps you get into the Star Trek universe more so, and it gets you, gets you into the mind of characters. It helps you get some background and deep diving into the Star Trek universe. In fact, 1983 also saw the release of not only the standard Star Trek role-playing game, but a Klingon role-playing game as well.
4: My name's Troy Mepians. I'm a long-time Star Trek gamer, as well as an author of several fantasy adventure novels and a writer for Star Trek Adventures for the last seven years. Even someone that doesn't watch Star Trek or know much about it knows the name Klingon. The Klingons have become an iconic race, not just in the Final Frontier, but in the science fiction genre in general as well. I would argue that Klingons are the most popular non-human race in the Star Trek franchise, surpassing both Vulcans and the enigmatic Romulans. The thing is, in 1983, things were a lot different. Vulcans were probably the most popular alien in Star Trek, with Mr. Spock as one of the most recognizable and iconic characters in the history of science fiction visual media. That was all going to change soon. And FASA Gaming was at the leading edge of placing the Klingons in front of fans and gamers as a living and breathing species that was far more complex than simply being the bad guys. The fact that Fossa introduced an option for role-playing Klingons when all we really knew of them at the time was what we had seen in the 60s and then in Star Trek The Motion Picture speaks to how bold the burgeoning RPG industry was in telling stories and making lore where little existed before. The Klingons in the original series were memorable opponents for Kirk and Company, with names that are legendary in the Star Trek mythos, Kang, Koloth, core. Michael Ansara, William Campbell, and John Kolokos each brought their unique take on the role, which helped to set the stage for what was to come in later films, followed by the next generation era that fully fleshed out the Klingons. Who didn't love the mustached core as the foil for Kirk and Spock, or Koloth complaining about being persecuted by Starfleet? And Michael Ansara was amazing in Day of the Dove as Kang. The box set was released in 1983, the same year that Faza released the core box set for Star Trek The Role Playing Game, which constituted an all-in approach to getting their game into the hands of most people by having the most options. It contained everything players needed to step into the role of what was at the time the central villain of the Star Trek universe. We were, however... Shown the Klingons and that there was more to them than war and violence. Yes, those are a facet of a martial culture like the Klingons. But Fossa introduced family dynamics, imperial and political dynamics, and physiological and psychological dynamics that took the bad guys and turned them into something more. They were complex, three dimensional, and were as capable as a human of love. Friendship and laughter. Now, fast forward to the summer of 1991. I had just graduated high school and been reintroduced to Star Trek as more than just a passing fan. I'd watched and enjoyed some of the original series when I was very little and most of the animated series when I was a little older and had been taken to see the motion picture when it was released. Now, as a young kid, I had a hard time understanding what was happening in the motion picture, so I didn't pay much attention to Star Trek after that. I figured it was you know, more of an adult thing. In 91, however, seeing the films again, diving into the next generation and watching the original series again was like having an entirely new galaxy opened up to me. We picked up the box set at a Walden bookstore in the local mall and immediately started making characters and telling stories in the community college cafeteria when we were supposed to be going to class. The Klingons were brought in almost immediately with a Klingon captain named Corwin as my starship captain Nudsen's primary nemesis. The TNG book came out and we scarfed that up, spinning a yarn about our crew being transported into the future to resume their missions and adventures on a galaxy-class starship. But I had been reading through the Klingon material and learning more about this warrior race. The concepts of honor, courage, strength, were things that I could sink my teeth into, so I created my first Klingon character a participant in the officer exchange program named Corgan, son of Tassil. At the time, we still used Fossa material as our guide, so we had the family positions of Eptai, Sutai, and what have you, as well as the idea of Klingon fusions, which is how Fossa explained human-appearing Klingons and what they called back then Imperial Klingons, which were the Klingons that we are more familiar with today. One of my crew on my Federation starship was a Klingon-Vulcan fusion, for example. Through the several years we played with these characters, we severely followed up the timeline to the point where the Klingon Empire actually split in two, and my character, my friend's character, were the opposing leaders. Then, sadly, time marched on. Family, adulthood, sent our friends and our group around the country. Whenever a new Star Trek game was released, I'd have it in my hands within the first week. Unfortunately, no one wanted to play it in those years, but I always kept those characters in my heart, particularly the Klingons as they were in My Awakening, into the fact that not everyone will have the same views or the same values, but there's still common ground to be found in honor and courage. Seems like things have come full circle now. I'm quite a bit older, but my love for this universe never abated and I was afforded the opportunity to work as a freelance writer for the new Star Trek Adventures game by Sam Webb and Jim Johnson. Uh, I had been playtesting at that time, but from that moment on, I've had the privilege of creating stories and adventures in the Star Trek universe that span from the founding of the Federation to the next generation era. One of the projects I got to work on was the Klingon Core Rulebook. And the first standalone mission for Klingon players called Upsetting the Balance. While my player's heart is with my character commanding the USS Pioneer in another galaxy, a Romulan, mind you, I'll never lose sight of where it started, and the first alien race I truly came to respect and understand. If you're in the STA Facebook groups, you'll likely see me there quite a bit. Answering questions, telling stories, and just having a good time with the community. Say hello, send me a message, or simply ask a question. Star Trek is where I am now, and it's good to be home. I'm Dr. Mohammed Noor, a biology professor at
6: Duke University and an occasional science consultant for the Star Trek universe, and you are listening to Starpod Trek the podcast that explores Gene Roddenberry's vision
5: of the future. Welcome aboard, Captain.
0: January 1st, 1983 is considered the official birthday of the Internet. Prior to this, the various computer networks did not have a standard way to communicate with each other. A new communications protocol was established, TCP-IP. This allowed different kinds of computers on different networks to talk to each other. r that's A-R-P-A-N-E-T, and the Defense Data Network officially changed to the TCP-IP standard on January 1, 1983, hence the birth of the Internet. All networks can now be connected by a universal language.
1: Now we spoke about it on previous episodes of StarPod Log. Everyone was talking about personal computers at this time. It was an amazing era.
0: So it's interesting that the internet actually goes back to 1983 because it really, you know, it wasn't popular back then. I had never heard of it. Um it, it was a time when personal computers were becoming popular. So, so, you know, you had computers at home, but they still weren't connected to the internet yet. They were just, you know, it was just a computer you could use at home and most people played games on them, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And yes, we did have Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator by Sega. That was available for all major home computer systems. But the other Star Trek games that were being made that were not official Star Trek games, because, but Trekkies were adamant on getting as much Trek as possible into their computers, included Galaxy Trek, Star Trek 6.8, 3D Time Trek, and Trek Adventure. Yes, this was the era of home computers, and it was just going to get better as time goes on. Inner space.
3: That's right. Inner space. Lower your thermostat and save money. The cold dampness of outer space can make it unlivable. Discover an amazing way to heat a room for just pennies in an hour kerosene portable kerosene heaters 99.9 percent fuel efficient
5: precision designed and safety tested to the highest technical standards
7: kerosene brings comfort
5: to inner space for a price that's comfortable too rca video disc first we opened your eyes to great entertainment now we're going to open your ears to stereo sound Introducing RCA's Stereo Video Disc Player. Letting you enjoy great stereo entertainment and movies on your TV tonight. Basic players start at two ninety nine. stereo higher. RCA's Stereo Video Disc. It'll open your eyes and your ears.
3: Buy the player now and get Rocky three or Star Trek II or Dumbo free. Next, the universe is torn apart by
7: the ultimate bow of revenge. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, next on HBO.
1: Starlog Magazine, issue number 78. Cover date, January 1984.
7: Hey, greetings and welcome. This is Bert Bruce. Dedicating this to my two daughters, who I hope get the future that they so uh, deserve. The article is Nicholas Meyer witness at the end of the world the telemovie the day after aired november 20th 1983 100 million sets of eyes watched that on broadcast network television up until 2009 it uh, was the most most watched television movie ever presented again 100 million viewers it's right up there with the uh, final episode of mash and uh, it concerns the day after I'm going to read the first uh, portion of the article because it's important. These are the words of Nicholas Meyer. It is my opinion that the end of the world as a result of nuclear war is very close. In fact, it may happen within a decade, that decade being 1983 to 1993. I have always thought it was going to occur in my lifetime. The question is, did I want to go meekly like a lamb to the slaughter, or did I wish to protest and try to rally others to also protest? Making this movie for television became my best shot. Most citizens who are as appalled by what's coming as I am would not have that opportunity. I think we must hustle. I also think it's already too late, but I made this movie because I want to try and prevent nuclear war. And frankly, this is an issue I would prefer to be wrong about. Again, that man speaking was Nicholas Meyer uh, concerning the television movie The Day After. He goes on to uh, talk about FEMA Well, first off, he talks about a little television movie that I believe was aired on NBC called Special Bulletin. It was a little bit different. It was uh, in the uh, realm of the War of the Worlds radio broadcast by Orson Welles. Many people thought Special Bulletin was a real bulletin about nuclear war. I've never gotten to see that one either, and I'm going to try to look it up on YouTube. But it created a big ruckus, so ABC uh, countered it with the uh, television movie uh, The Day After. And uh, Nicholas Meyer went on to say he was the third person uh, picked, chosen to direct it because nobody else really wanted to touch it. The other problem was trying to find uh, advertisers. The reason it took so long to air on uh, ABC television was trying to find sponsors. They originally considered airing it without commercials because they felt it was a very, like a public service announcement, it was important for people to see it. He also. Uh, mentioned that he talked to fema the federal emergency management agency which is a joke when we toured the fema offices in kansas city they showed us plans to evacuate the city between blast areas kansas city is one blast area los angeles is another two so-called host areas i said there's only 25 minutes between the time a nuclear warhead leaves and the time it arrives over the north pole but it takes hours to evacuate a city how are you going to do this the official said We assume we'll have some advance notice because we won't start evacuating our cities until we know the Soviets are evacuating theirs. And since our roads are better than theirs, we have a better chance of being evacuated first. How will people know where to go, I ask? He said they're printing the instructions in the yellow pages as an experiment. Remember the yellow pages? In about six years, instructions will be in all phone books. Yeah, like we even own phone books now. So if you have a phone, you're in luck probably presumably also a car the other part of the evacuation plan is completely nuts our administration representative says we'll be all right if we have enough shovels to dig holes and cover ourselves as one sixth grader noted if everyone is going to dig a hole who'll be there to cover them with dirt when sixth graders start seeing through your plan that's not a good sign he also goes on to talk about uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki which was at that time 38 years ago. would Now it'd be almost, well, it was 1940-something, so it's 80-plus uh, 80, 80 years ago. In the day after, Meyer says, I'm not sure successfully to give you some sort of rough idea of what this event could be like. As far as I know, it's the closest attempt to approximate the experience. At the movie's end, we put on a little caveat saying, you know, if a real nuclear attack occurred, it would be much worse than what we showed you. We used one Megaton bomb so we could have a story left to tell. He also went on to say that uh, they didn't want to use name actors. They used uh, Jason Robards as the biggest name in the cast, but uh, John Cullum did Northern Exposure. Joe Beth Williams was in Poltergeist. B.B. Besh, of course, was in Star Trek II as Dr. Carol Marcus. So it was not. It was secondary actors that uh, you really didn't know their work very well because they hadn't done a lot of stuff. He wanted to avoid using people like Shelley Winters to make it more like the Towering Inferno or the Poseidon Adventure. He wanted to go away from that direction to show the importance of real people suffering from nuclear radiation fallout and the effects of boiling inside out, which he was pretty successful. The first half of the movie is kind of draggy. It shows small-town life in Kansas City. And then after, the the effects are only so-so. I mean, for 1983, they were they were good enough but some stock footage of missile silos and then uh uh you know skeletons of uh, horses and whatnot it, it, it's serviceable for that time period but of course if you really want the penultimate effects you want to go to uh, James Cameron in Terminator 2 when uh, Linda Harrison has the uh, flashback of uh, or the uh, not flashback so much as a uh, premonition of what nuclear annihilation will look like on a playground uh that's that's probably one of the finest nuclear explosions ever done on film but uh this film was very good for its time it did uh, awaken a lot of people i think uh sting probably wrote in uh, in effect that song uh, he hoped the russians Love their children too that song is uh, could be direct correlation to this film the other good thing it did because i did get to rewatch it talks about electromagnetic pulses emps and during the uh nuclear fallout uh they they explode a uh, nuclear bomb in the atmosphere and all the cars all the electricity everything that's uh you know electric oriented ceases to function so that they're left with uh ga- you know coleman lanterns and uh things of that nature that was very well done because let's face it if we don't have cars and all our cars are running the ele- light your tesla it's fried uh, you know all of our vehicles have batteries and electric systems if we can't get anywhere We're back to horseback days, and not many of us own horses. He uh, points out in the latter part of the article about uh, the uh, people work together, the people of uh, Kansas City. The actors all uh, bonded over the experience, and they realized what what an important work they were doing, and they wanted to make sure that uh, people actually watched the movie and at that time, when he when the article was submitted, it had yet to air on television, and he was jokingly saying that. But what about Miami? In other words, Nicholas Meyer was uh, being facetious and saying, you know, how am I going to win Miami if they don't show this thing on TV? But it was a joke, of course. He also, at the end of the article, he talks a little bit about Star Trek two and that it was successful and he was pleased with the outcome, though he didn't get his he didn't get everything he wanted to in the movie. But you can find the director's cut, as Nair and Kavura have pointed out before, it's a very good director's cut. Many people want to uh, be chicken little and scream the sky is falling. I'm hoping in a Star Trek, again, another Star Trek reference, in a Star Trek way that we are wise enough not to go to nuclear proliferation, why this is important. Right now we're witnessing it with the Russia invading Ukraine and uh, the madman Putin constantly saying that he's going to use nuclear uh, weapons as necessary and then we have israel and israel does have nuclear weapons and they're not going to tell you about it they're just going to say that's it we've had enough if iran uh, really pushes the issue and hamas uh, gets much worse and it uh, it escalates i do i do see problems in the middle east i do see israel using nuclear weapons now the problem is once the nuclear weapons start flying, when do they stop? Right now we talk about the Iron Dome and that, uh, you know, we've sent uh, military aid to Israel, but let's face it, if they really want to let loose the uh, weapons of mass destruction, they can do so. And they could do it with chemical agents too. We talk about nuclear weapons, but, you know, there are chemical warfare weapons that I'm sure that are well hidden and stockpiled that we don't even know about, so... We live in very bad times. I despair for my uh, my children and their children, should they have any. I uh, think we live in very interesting times, as they've said. But this Starlog again is always on the cutting edge. Here we are, literally forty years later, and Starlog is still relevant today as it was then. And Nicholas Meyer does point out to. Uh, the Starlog uh, author, the uh, writer of the article, he says he's really pleased that Starlog is covering the day after because he feels uh, that the audience of Starlog is definitely should uh, be one to benefit from this television movie as well. And it makes a good point that science fiction isn't always just about positivism and optimism. Star Trek paints a world where we're all going to live, and, and we hope we do, but there, there are many uh, nuclear scenarios as well. And that's my time. That's my dog telling me i got to go.
8: USS Reliant, registry number NCC-1864. Military vessel or not? Hello out there in podcast land. My name is Buckner F. Melton, Jr. And I'm Trevor Mulleth. Uh As Buckner F. Melton, Jr., I podcast at uh, NavalHistoryPodcast.com. You can find me Uh, many different
9: sources, iTunes, and soon-to-be Spotify. Your best bet to find me would just be to look me up on Facebook, and from there you can find all my social media. So as for our Star Trek credentials, I am old enough to have caught the original series in
8: prime time at a very young age. I do have some memories of it, but I started watching for real uh, a few years later, so I am celebrating my 50th year as a Trekkie.
9: I've been a fan of Star Trek for as long as I can remember. One of my early childhood memories is watching All Good Things as it premiered with my mother. And when Q reaches into the primordial goo, it, goo. Re- it really freaked Tiny Me out and stuck with me. Yeah,
8: so i remember how he said goo.
9: <laughs> you want to take it away, Trevor, or you want me to go with it? Well, it was built... About 19 years after the Enterprise was, according to a commemorative plaque in an episode of Picard, and by that point, the Enterprise had already seen a lot of war conflict, including the Klingon Wars. I think when you boil down to it, every ship in the Federation is not supposed to be a warship, but they're armed like one, and that kind of makes them a warship, whether they want to be or not. Yeah, technically, I think you
8: were telling me when we were getting set up here that the Miranda class, of which the Reliant is one, was designed as what was it again? I'll let you. It re- is
9: a science and supply science ship. Science
8: and supply. And let's compare that to the USS Grissom, which uh, showed up in the following move. And we probably should have said this, but obviously the USS Reliant we are talking about was the one commandeered by Khan Noonien Singh in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. In 2285, in the yes. universe. So, but the Grissom was also a science ship, and and apparently was a lot more lightly armed. But uh, I think the problem here, and I don't want to get sucked down this black hole, but but to talk about whether the Reliant is a military vessel or not, you got to talk at least a little bit about whether or not Starfleet is a military organization, and and I know that everybody's got their own point of view on that one. Uh it's, it's an insoluble problem. Uh, first of all, everybody wants a good, clean, bright line. But one of the things I was looking up, uh, the good old Oxford English Dictionary, the definition of military, it, it's uh, pertaining to or befitting soldiers, used, done, or brought about by soldiers, from going all the way back to the old French and the Latin to uh, uh, militaris, which meant soldiers of war. And even in, in universe, they, they can't get their stories straight. You have Kirk in Errand of Mercy saying, I'm a soldier, not a diplomat. But then in Whom Gods Destroy, Kirk says, I am now primarily an explorer. And then Picard in Peak Performance says, Starfleet is not a military organization. Our purpose is exploration.
9: I think Starfleet, on its best day, is purely for exploration and meeting all these neat new people. But... It doesn't make for the best storytelling on TV or in movies if all you're doing is exploring. You need conflict, and so we see these ships fighting all the time with other militaries. The Klingon military, we see them fighting with the Romulan military, and they they are without doubt militaries. Yeah, when we
8: looked at uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, we, we didn't have a villain. We didn't have any real source of conflict, and I think that was one of the problems with it, although Trevor tells
9: me that uh, there's been a real renaissance of interest in uh, TMP. The, the motion picture is pretty pretty well-liked these days. It's mid-tier Star Trek, but enough people are like, yeah, it's pretty good and fun. Well, no accounting for taste. <laughs> uh, but, yeah,
8: also, once again, go back. If you look at Roddenberry and at the other series creators, I'm looking at the original producers, Bob Justman, Fred Freiberger, Gene Kuhn. Uh, they were all in the military. Uh, Roddenberry himself was uh, was an officer who flew combat missions. Uh, many others, the writers, Richard Matheson, Harlan Ellison, uh, the actors, uh, DeForest Kelly, Leonard Nimoy, James Doohan. Uh, they had been in the war. They'd had combat experience. But by the time Roddenberry's doing this thing, uh, you're, you've now got a nuclear capability. The Cuban Missile Crisis had, had just a few years ago almost led us to a, to a nuclear catastrophe. Vietnam is starting to make eyebrows go up. So Roddenberry said it's
9: not military, but
3: it, you know, as you said it, it,
9: it, it depends on the writers, mm-hmm. and it depends on the story. And sometimes the only way to make a Star Trek story work is to make it more military. Yes. Look at, look at Wrath of Khan and look at Undiscovered Country. There's no denying that they are basically military movies. Yes. And
8: I was just at Monsterama in Atlanta when uh, Nick Meyer was uh, one of the guests of honor. And he talked about how he was fascinated by, by combat, by uh, Jules Verne and the Nautilus, by submarines. And, and you can see that, the, the dark, uh, Uh, the dark sets, the the rich colors of the uniforms, uh, and and this sort of thing. Well, I don't want to beat this dead horse. Uh, I I will say that even if you look at the missions of the United States military as defined by Congress, none of these missions start out. It is the mission of the Army or the mission of the Air Force to beat the hell out of the enemy. Uh, It is, uh, for instance, uh, it is the intent of Congress, and I'm reading here from the U.S. Code, to provide an army that is... Uh, capable of preserving the peace and security and providing for the defense of the United States. So that sounds like Starfleet, just Starfleet's more global and universal. Right. And then the Coast Guard, which you could argue changes it a little bit, promotion of safety and life and property on or under the high seas, uh, and and also to assist in the defense of the United States when called to do so. That sounds even more, I think, like Starfleet. Mm-hmm. Getting getting back to the Reliant a little bit and, and Wrath of Khan, let's think about what, what David and Carol Marcus have to say to each other after they know Reliant is headed back to them prematurely. And David says, scientists have always been pawns of the military. And you remember how uh, do, do you remember she, how Carol replies to that? She says
9: Starfleet has kept the peace for 100 years. Right. Yep. So,
8: so, yeah, I mean, even they are taking it in two directions. Right? So, but, but about the Reliant it, itself, uh, I mean, that puppy is very, very heavily armed for a science and support ship, it seems to me.
9: Yeah, I, I looked into it. It has six phaser emitters and two photon torpedo launchers, and that sounds like a warship mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, and I will say, as somebody who who obviously uh, caught
8: Wrath of Khan in the theater, uh, and and especially coming out of the what can I I can only describe as a bland motion, Star Trek the motion picture. When Star you Star Trek the motionless picture. I, I just heard that for the first time yesterday, <laughs> as a matter of fact. But you see, when uh, uh, when Khan gives the order to fire. You see that close-up of that phaser emitter, and and the phaser emitters on the Enterprise are sort of buried within the hull. But this big ugly thing just sitting on top of of what one of the cells or the with the thing over the bridge, and just at the way it slashes in.
9: Yeah, to, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, it That's was a-
8: it was ugly, and and I just I cringed when you see the Enterprise being opened up like a can
9: opener. Well. One thing that I noted is Mm. that it's not the Reliant itself, but the Miranda class, 88 years after Wrath of Khan, you see plenty of Miranda classes used specifically as warships throughout the Dominion War in Deep Space Nine. You see the NCC-4186, you see the USS Trial, the USS Sherkar, sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, I'm bad with Vulcan names, (laughs) but you almost exclusively in deep space nine see them used as warships and yet it's 88 years difference so they may have slightly different ideas but they're still the same starship class so the components must have always been there. And let's, let's talk about that from a couple of different directions. Uh, first of all
8: uh, it, oh, who is, uh, who is the Admiral in Star Trek III? Not, not Cartwright. Cartwright was. Uh, Cartwright was, was Brock Peters in Four and Six. Yeah, but I, I'm having a momentary yeah. senior moment here. But you know, he says, Jim, the Enterprise is 20 years old. We feel her day is past. Well, in the first place, I, I think the only way you can get 20 years old is if they are dating from a refit or something. Because mm-hmm. it, it's obviously much and, older.
9: I, I, I want to say it was built in 2245, right. so it was 40 years by that point. Yes, and secondly,
8: uh, both in the days of the Age of Sail, and of course, uh, Star Trek was early described as horn blower in space, so in the Age of Sail, uh, a properly maintained warship could, uh, could hang around for a century or more, and it wouldn't become technologically obsolete. And, and even in our own age, uh, the B-52s which were designed in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, their service life is now projected out uh, until the 2040s, darn near a century so the idea of seeing a ship hang around that long is you know, is not out of the, the question whatsoever. I
9: want to say you see a Miranda class in the final Voyager episode which would be like 114 years after they were first built. Yes, and and I don't think that's that's out of the realm of
8: possibility whatsoever. But the interesting thing is the job they are doing uh, during the Dominion War. And, it's as, and uh, as described in Memory Alpha, they are an escort vessel. Now, that raises a couple of interesting points. Uh, first of all, an escort vessel seems to me very clearly to be fulfilling a military function. Bad guys come in, you shoot at bad guys and protect what you're escorting. The other one that I think is interesting, so, well, Reliant has showed up on uh, more than one occasion in the ship, Ships of the Line uh, annual calendar. And so let's talk about this phrase, Ship of the Line, uh, that, this, uh, that this phrase originates probably in the 1600s or 1700s uh, when uh, the British fighting instructions and uh, the other European navies sort of adopt the similar idea. Uh, this is when you have sailing ships and not oared ships. And so your broadsides, your, uh, your cannon, your seagoing artillery are put on the sides of the ship where uh, the oarsmen used to be uh, in an earlier time. And so to get firepower on an enemy, uh, you would line up bow to stern, bow to stern, bow to stern. Like if you're driving down the interstate, the car is in your lane ahead of you and behind you and that would form what is called a line of battle. Hmm. And so a ship that was heavy enough and big enough and tough enough and with big enough artillery to stand in the line of battle and bash away at enemy ships of that size were called ships of the line of battle, which then became abbreviated as a line of battleship. And then by the time we move on to the Age of Steam, And uh, modern steel warships of the late 1800s and the early 1900s, they just get abbreviated to battleship, which (laughs) mean big, heavy guns, lots of heavy armor. But there are many other warships in addition to a battleship. And so an escort vessel would be like a destroyer or, or even something called a destroyer escort. Much smaller guns, much lighter weight, but much faster and more maneuverable, but they would not be able to stand in the old line of battle. Mm-hmm. That's, that was not their function. Uh, for instance, in World War II, destroyers were designed uh, as escort vessels and to uh, their, their, their big enemy was submarines, anti-submarine work, which is, right. which is not line of battle. So on the one hand, by putting Reliant in the ships-of-the-line calendar, uh, you're were say, you were giving them a military designation. A ship of the line is pure it's military. Military. Right. On the other hand, I think it's a misnomer because it's, it's not a Constitution class. It's not a dreadnought class. It, it's a
9: lighter, more maneuverable ship. Right, right. So. It, mainly the Enterprise and the Constitution classes were the ones that were really used for war, especially given what we see in Discovery, which a- admittedly is mildly retconning the history of Star Trek, but it still lines up with everything we've seen before. Yeah,
8: and, and talk about this. You were just mentioning this to me the other day, the difference in the the Enterprise
9: D and E, and how E is much more... E, e looks much sleeker and ready for a fight, mm-hmm. and it was designed around the... maybe a couple of years later than the Defiant on Deep Space Nine, which was explicitly built to do battle with the Borg. And I think that the Enterprise-E was built for basically the same thing. Yeah, nominally it's an exploration ship, but by that point we're in the middle of the Dominion War, at least at the beginning, and they have to be armed and ready for the Borg because, as you see in Best of Both Worlds, the Borg destroys how many ships right there? Yes, yes. And, and that's the thing, the D always
8: looked dumpy to me, and part of that was that the the primary saucer hull was uh, was slightly oval and oblong, but it was set perpendicular to the rest of the ship. So if you look at the E, they take it and turn it 90 degrees, like Voyager, uh, mm-hmm. like the Intrepid class, and it just looks sleeker and meaner and more wolf-like. It really does. And then they dressed the bridge set a lot more ser- seriously,
9: like almost like yesterday's Enterprise. Uh, bridge set was the d to me always struck me as the most exploration vessel looking of the enterprises yeah because it's basically a giant hotel in space yes all the so. all the beiges keep you comfy and then when it got destroyed by a rickety old klingon bird of prey they said Oh right, we can't do this anymore we got to be prepared for the borg yes uh, so i
8: think you're right so um uh, but yeah, getting back to Reliant, um, it, and it's also the way it's presented. And I'm thinking of that original attack. I'm, I'm thinking of the, the wonderful James Horner slow build up, and then when somebody says it's one of ours, sir, it's Reliant. I think it's Savick who says it's one of ours. It's Reliant, and you show that close up of Reliant mm-hmm. dramatically lit at that sort of canted angle on the screen. I mean, if you had put a clown car coming in like that and set it to James Horner's music, it it, it wouldn't it was, have had the effect. Right. I mean, this thing just looks nasty. It does. So uh, yeah, I would say from appearances alone that, that there is certainly a military aspect to it. It's got a threat to it. It, it does. And and every, the whole scene, the music, the lighting, and everything is designed to accentuate that. I, I, I would like to finish, and then I'll give you the last word, though, to, to sort of go back once again and say that the dividing line between military and exploration has, has never been a, the bright line that some people want. And I'm looking here at, at both U.S. and British naval history, and I'm just going to name off some names. HMS Dolphin, uh, explorations in the 1760s. Uh, HMS, uh, a naval vessel with 24 guns, Uh, The HMS Swallow, a 14-gun Merlin-class sloop. HMS Endeavor, uh, which was commanded, of course, by James Cook. And by the way, I just saw in Jeopardy something last night that blew my mind. How could I have never known this? That Cook apparently said when he was setting off on one of his voyages, I have been farther than any man has ever voyaged before. And then when you think James Cook and James Kirk... (laughs) <laughs> Light bulb. Yo. Um, so HMS Resolution uh, in the United States Navy, USS Vincennes, uh, a Boston-class sloop of war. The HMS Beagle, of course, Charles Darwin's famous voyage was a 10-gun uh, sloop. The Erebus and the Terror. Uh, HMS Challenger of the late 1800s, uh, which gave its name to the Challenger Deep. All of these were warships, mm-hmm. and it, all of these were scientific expeditions. So... Reliant? Why no? Well, you know, to be exact. Things the get
9: same. fuzzy in space. <laughs> yes,
8: it, it, is, it is very fuzzy in space. <laughs> and by the way, on the uh, last episode of uh, Star Trek uh, pod, that somebody was referring to, to aliens. So I guess uh, I, I would say uh, the last thing I would say is put the uh, good old Georgia boy spin on this. Uh, how about alien meets deliverance? And the catchphrase is. In space, no one can hear you squeal, <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that. Take it away.
9: Yeah, I think I think it. Part of it is it depends on who's writing the episode, what they think Starfleet is. But at the same time, it does get kind of fuzzy because you've got to be armed to the teeth because you don't know what's out there. Nobody yes. does. Yes. So on its best day, Starfleet is always building ships for peace. But they are armed to the teeth and ready to fight, and so was the reliant, and it did. Also, yep. and I I think that's the best, the closest to a
8: resolution we can get.
9: Yeah, so it's above um, our pay grade. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So,
8: so with that, I guess we will turn it back over to the hosts. And once again, I'm Buckner F. Melton Jr. You can find me at www.navalhistorypodcast.com
9: and on most podcast platforms. And I'm Trevor Mullis. Look me up on Facebook and you'll find the rest of my social media presence.
1: And we're really wrapping things up with regards to our coverage of Wrath of Khan in this episode. And oftentimes when we have discussions with other fans and we talk about current Star Trek, because we do watch current Star Trek just to keep up with it, the question comes up is why do they have to keep bringing back Khan, rebooting Khan, and why can't they make Star Trek as awesome as it was years past? So let's talk about some of these reboots of Khan. Uh, we rewatched Into Darkness just in preparation to get our minds fresh for this. So when you watched Into Darkness, and what was your response when you saw that? Who portrayed Khan and how Khan was portrayed?
0: You mean like the first time I saw it? Mm-hmm. It, it was shocking, first of all, you know, just to think, oh, it, it's Khan, but it but it really isn't.
1: Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah, not the first name that I think of when I think of Khan. And,
0: and I was already familiar with Benedict from from Sherlock. He had already Great done show. Sherlock yes. at this time, yes. yeah. So yeah, so I mean, I, I was love a, him as an actor. Yeah, I was already a fan of his, but yeah, it, it was strange to see him in this part. And, and of course, another reaction is just like, why would they do that? Why would they? Of course. Why did they even attempt it?
1: Now, I couldn't figure out why they had him become Khan. It was weird to me. What did you hear you hear about why they cast him as Khan?
0: I heard that they, they wanted a white man. Um, they didn't want to make him um, a minority because they just they just didn't want the villain to be a minority. It would that would you know give a, the wrong message about minorities.
1: Absolutely. I've never heard of anything absurd, more absurd in my life. Never would even think of something like that. That was so – when you told me that, I was like, that's weird. The comic books, if you get the IDW comics, they try to explain it by saying that Section 31 ended up physically altering his features so that he could go undercover. And so they gave him Caucasian features just to hide the fact that he was con. So they try to kind of make up for it, and that's what I like reading about the comics. The comics fill in the story a little bit and actually make the story more palatable.
0: Yeah, that kind of makes sense. I mean, to, yeah, that someone came up with that idea, that's, yeah, that's a good way to explain it. Mm-hmm.
1: In New Trek, we also have a Khan's ancestor. I mean, there still is an obsession with Khan. Well, strange New he, yeah, Worlds. Yeah,
0: he's popular now because well, you know, I think Khan wasn't really that popular in fandom until Wrath of Khan, that when they brought him back in that movie, now all of a sudden Khan is is oh, an icon. Yes, and, yes. And, and so yeah, so on Strange New Worlds having the character, that one was um yeah, yeah that that's very strange too. They, that but Strange New Worlds keeps has, having to bring back It's because, you know, because they want to. They're bringing back all this stuff from the original series. Instead of coming up with new things, they're reusing things. Mm -hmm.
1: And modern times, within the past ten years, there have been numerous comic series uh, about Khan. They even made a Wrath of Khan movie adaption. Because all the other movies were adapted in comic form, with the exception of Khan. Because it was in between the Marvel and DC license. So IDW made up for that. Reign in Hell. They, that was an excellent series that tells, that fills in the story between Space Seed and Wrath of Khan movie.
0: Yeah, those comics were good explaining how, like what, what went on on SETI Alpha 5 after, um, Khan and his people were there. And it, it was a good story. And it, it was a little different from, from Greg Cox when he wrote the novels about what happened to Khan's people, which, mm-hmm. and of course Greg Cox went into a lot more detail and I
1: highly recommend reading that trilogy. Yes. Yes.
0: But uh, so all all of these books about, you know, Khan's uh backstory, they're all very interesting. So so I mean, so yeah, that's a, a good reason to to have stories about him. I mean, yeah, now so now we've seen more of his backstory and it, and it's great.
1: But it is curious that we have to keep bringing Khan back into new Trek. That being said, we have a few interviews that we're going to wrap up the show with with fans that express what they feel about new Trek compared to the classic Trek, especially the era of the Wrath of Khan. I have my friend Doug Kramer joining us. Welcome, Doug. Well, thank you. Doug, how did you Trek yourself?
10: Um, well, that's always an interesting question. That's like um, one of the questions I hear like people like on some other podcasts always say years ago. What was your gateway drug into science fiction? And mine was a combination of things like Doctor Who and Star Trek because when me being 57 years old, they would show that in Maryland in the afternoon or on Saturdays. I, being a science fiction fan, would be looking for genre shows to watch and Star Trek was the first one. How about your
1: first experience with Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan? Do you have fond memories of viewing it?
10: Yeah, um, going to the theater is always fun because where I grew at that time, nerdum wasn't spread out and in, and in, I guess in the public not known a lot. So I was I grew up thinking I was the only kid who liked this stuff, and there wasn't a whole lot of conventions at that time. So when you went when I went and saw the movie. I saw a lot of other fans and kids dressing up in costumes and uniforms. And it was like, oh... It was like someone putting seeds in my head. Like, oh, I'm not alone. There's other people like this much as I do. Mm -hmm. And that was a big thing. Because my parents wasn't science fiction nerds. My father was a sports guy. And it was like... Same here. Exactly yeah. same here. Yeah, yeah. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of similar story to a lot of people in their l- l- 50s, I would say that. I mean, a lot of nerds in the 50s, we have, even have if we're scattered out through the country, but all our stories are very similar, mm-hmm. where it wasn't really new at the time. It was like, it was not a whole lot of comic book shops or a lot of conventions. It was creation was out there, and it was a struggle to especially struggle. to find yeah. star
1: trek stuff yeah. like yeah. you said yeah. there n- there wasn't a comic book store everywhere big cities had them but it well, it's just the, we had spinner
10: racks well, you had you had to have starlog magazine yeah. i was in the, i came from a big city area baltimore was a big city area but still you didn't have a lot of comic book stores most people at that time you went to like 711 Exactly. The spinner rack, and that's yes, where you got your. Yes, tickets. Yes. And like I said, it wasn't a lot of time for nerds. wasn't really a big term in the polka culture, and it wasn't really. And there was a lot of big conventions. Anything went on was a creation, and you, if you had go to DC, if you could afford it, or maybe New York, go up to New York to go to one. It wasn't like going to every city. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, and mostly everybody around me was blue collar, redneck. Or, sorry, that defends anybody, but uh, blue-collar people, and it was in the sports. It wasn't a whole lot of like, oh, you're in the sci-fi, and you did have some literary conventions, mm-hmm. but they did. But they considered Star Trek not science fiction, but science fantasy. They was more into books and not Show. and hard sci-fi and hard sci-fi. Yeah, hard sci-fi. Well, that was what they considered on um, science fiction was hard sci-fi or mm-hmm. science-based. Not Star Trek. That was more considered like sci-fi fantasy. They had their own uses too, to, like for information. But but I never go into like a movie and that was the first, it was, like you said, the experience was for me that was like, I didn't care for the first one. Mm-hmm. That was the second one and it was like, oh, Star Trek was back. I think that was a reboot
5: mm-hmm.
10: for uh, a generation that came after me. Because the first one, I didn't think it was, it didn't do for me. It, it was a good me I just saw that in the theater not too long ago, like two weeks ago. Um, a theater in Virginia re-showed it, and I went down there with some friends to see. But the second one had all the elements from the original show. Mm-hmm. And they changed some. It was a more fun story because it hit on all the notes with me. Mm-hmm. And I think no, I'm not going to go in too much on the first one, but this one had all the elements. This one really hit, home and it had all the the storyline was hit, hit perfectly with re not rebooting the franchise, but bringing it, it to the theaters, and like you got to see a lot of the original characters again. I think this movie re-energized Star Trek. Yeah, I would agree with you. It re-energized it. For for the generation came after me, and for my generation who grew up with it, but I think I was, or the generation before me, the movie um, Star Trek. II, what we're talking about is, here's I was a second generation. That's what I was talking, thinking about a couple minutes ago. Was, um, when the movie was released, you had the fans who originally saw it when it aired on CBS. And me being 57, my generation was the one who saw it when it went into, I guess, um, repeats or what you said? Syndication. Syndication, yes. Syndication. That was all the fan base at the time. And when this came out, kids, they liked it. It, it was very weird you think about it in today's society because it hit home with the first generation of fans, the second generation of fans, and then the new fans. Now, if you look at, like, the new series, like, on Paramount Plus, can we say that? Can we say, like... like I don't even think young kids are watching Paramount Plus shows. I think that... I'm not sure, because with the pandemic, I can't really gauge the fan base anymore. But the what I do see on, on the internet, you had, like, Discovery and... The Pike new series going where no man no going to. Un, what is it? I call it the Pike series <laughs> uh, for everybody. Um, here's a disconnect. It's like Discovery. My generation don't like. It's the same thing as with the Pike series. That the, the it's kind of that's is kind of hitting all three groups. But like card series and I think especially Discovery, you have two different groups. The, the younger people in their 20s, they like some parts of it, and then the older generation like other parts. But most of my generation is not warming up to Discovery cause for the last several years. But I'm, I'm getting around to my point is um, the new... That movie hit all three groups. Everyone loved the Con. Everyone liked it. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's, that's my... What my my thought is, it's like with a lot of panel, a lot of discussions. I feel like nowadays, as a Star Trek fan, is where is that writing at today? Is why can't we have writers where it hit the stories hit everybody, hit all the groups? The folks out there listening to podcasts, you're going to be saying, "I'm hitting, I'm beating a dead horse." Like, and trust me, I have a lot of friends that are like my generation are like, "You're you're 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 beating a dead horse," or. And I always apply to them. It's like, if you go to the con, they have, you see the room is divided up in two groups. You have the old guys on the one side, and you had all the kids <laughs> on the other side. And I kind of come turns with it. I'm on the side with the, all the old guys. I don't always agree with them, you know, because I do understand some of the um, changes nowadays, but I'm still not with on the train with some with the kids because if you're going to convince me, You want to make changes. You have to do it good.
1: And tell you what. Star Trek 2 built on the mythos of Star Trek.
10: Yeah, And I think it was the best Star Trek. If you look at the original. Because they did like six. Of the original cast. And out of them movies. I bet if you did a poll. Two is everybody's favorite.
1: And it's amazing. We're looking at. ...why that's the case. And Starlog gives us some insight on it. We're understanding the background of the people producing it.
10: It's funny they picked Rafa Khan, a Khan character, because if if everybody think about it, when they did a reboot with a certain famous Star Wars director, he picked that movie because it was one of the most popular from this movie with the fans... Now, who what the gentleman who did, who went, who did, the, started the reboot of the Star Wars of the Star Trek movies. Oh, JJ. JJ. Yes, I I am not a big JJ fan, so because mm-hmm. JJ did not like Star Trek. JJ said he going to use Star Trek to get to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't like being used. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and JJ picked the Rafa Khan reboot because it was because the original movie did so well in the franchise Mm -hmm. and the funny thing is and one of my pet peeves is what what we're like i said about the writing earlier is if anybody watched the the pike series the one security officer this is this is rewriting history people and this is one of my pet peeves so if you hate me not hate our our this Really cool guy who's doing the, and his wife doing this podcast, <laughs> but in the new, of like I said, in the new. I'm getting to my point. I promise you guys. Um, in the new um, Pike series, the security officer claims to be a ancestor, a con, and why are
1: they playing the
10: stupid what, game? Yeah, yeah, and I'm thinking when I'm watching this. Okay, um, in every version we have so far, from J.J.'s version to to Discovery to the classic movie um, series with Kirk and the original crew to the original show, nobody talked. All kinds of people, we was told, went with him in this ship and left Earth. So where did the great-granddaughter came from? It's like... <laughs> Because at the time he was, he didn't even mention he was married on the original show. So, so we're presuming he's um, he was an emperor and a dictator, and also abandoned his child. (laughs) 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 Is this a new side of the villain? Even in JJ, when we had the patch playing Khan, no mention of leaving any children behind on Earth whatsoever. And For, but he was a, a super dictator <laughs> and, and superhuman, but he had no problem leaving children behind. <laughs> I just, you know, it, it, little things like that. Because I'm, I'm so bizarre. Yeah, I'm a, so bizarre because I'm a diehard um, purist and I like canon, the history of the, of the series. So. I would say to the writers in the room, you want to put this twist in, but you not explaining to me at all so far. It's like, how did he leave this daughter behind him and her talk about her? Or did he, according to him, this mean when he did the original Star Trek show, that was the first time he hooked up with a non-superhuman. Because he thought they were in theater. So where did the kid came from? That's all I want to
1: know. One of the highlights of the film is seeing a new Federation ship, that being the USS Reliant. And they said purposely they did not want the Reliant to look like the Enterprise because it would be too confusing for the casual fan to go back and forth and to see that two ships look similar in space. So they made a new class, the Miranda class which was the Enterprise with the nacelles underneath and a roll bar on top. Now, for me, I love the design of the Reliant. Yes. I think that's one of the most ingenious designs of a Starfleet vessel. Yes. What do you think about yeah. the
10: Reliant? Yeah. I, I kind of agree with you. It's the learn changer because we, to that point in history with, with Star Trek, we saw the ships looking one way, mm-hmm. and then we've seen ships... And this was the first time we have seen other Sarfac, other ships in the fleet. And you think about it, like most fleets, every, every you have a couple different kinds of ships. And th- I think this is one of the first time we actually seen. We, we might have, I take it back. We might have seen one or two different ships in the original TV show, but for the most part, everything looked kind of like the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing in the fleet her other ships in the fleet, and at that point on, we've seen other ships. Even up to this current date, they all don't look the same. Mm -hmm. They're all not cookie cutter.
1: And this all spawned from Wrath of Khan. Wrath
10: of Khan, and that's what we've been saying. It it was a pivotal point in Star Trek history where they start deepening the, the, the universe and actually showing more of the Star Trek universe than what we've seen on the TV show.
1: This is a movie that the older you get the more you appreciate it. Yes, because you see the yeah. transformation of Kirk's frustrations of getting older. He wants to do things, but he's realizing that you know age is a limit on to what you do.
10: Yeah, well, you know, to me the first one I think he's kind of right and the first one I like shows are character-based driven series. And that was what the original show, it was made it really good, was you had, you know, Kurt, Spock, their relationship. They was character-based. And the first one, I think it was Star Trek, but it didn't have that element. And then the second one, not only it didn't have the element in the first one, but it was also we went in into... Like, where they are at that point, like, where was Spock, and where was Kirk, and where was Bones at that point, and the, and also where was Chekov, Horror, Sulu. It was like, um, it was like the game battleship, where, yeah. basically the same thing, a sub versus battleships, where you have to use sonar, and figuring things out. And like like yeah and And this like, is the winning combination yeah. for a Star Trek movie. Yeah, and, what, yeah. and it was like during the hype of the Cold War where everybody was like a lot of that attention between the American subs and the US Navy was going on. I think that's why it hit a lot of notes and it, it was a combination of that and he knew how to to bring the secret sauce of the original T V show into the movie. Because the first one was a science base, was very very hardcore for a sci-fi fantasy movie to hit the sci-fi, the hardcore science fiction fans who like more literary and the media fans, some kinds can be, or the fans who like science fantasy versus sci- hardcore science fiction. But Star Trek scenes always been that like combination for most pit folks. You got both crowds liking it. But that's why I said they were genius, and it was, uh, that movie was so much of, a, of a, point, for in the Star Trek universe with, like we said, combinations, of a lot of different things was going on, bringing that into, like a real good dinner. I would like to see more of that. I want the writers. I wish, the next generation writers or the television writers today, and the movie writers and the screenwriters that they would would learn from this. <laughs> and once I know once you know I'm beating a dead horse but I really like the writers that, like I think I was talking to like last night uh gentleman who writes science writes Star Trek books and I said I will, my claim thought is I want more of the writers Writing the I guess the, the TV shows for streaming and all to be people who knew the genre and write well yes yes i mean write not well. not soap opera writers no 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 not
1: drama i mean you, you look no. at the you look at the writers for discovery you look yeah. at their their backlog Her, it's yeah, just hers, it's, yeah. with the exception of kirsten Buyer. yeah their background is is horrendous
10: yeah that's what my closing thoughts would be is i i want the writers in the streaming room it's like we get it in some series, like in some of the Star Wars series and some some streaming services. But I want it in, as a sci-fi nerd, I want it in my, all my shows. If you're writing for a comic book show, I want you to know the comic. If you're writing science fiction, I want you to know the science fiction show you're writing for. I want you to, I mean, you couldn't do, I'm not going to like say well, you did like, General Hospital to, like, pull you back. But can you pick up a Star Trek book and actually read the stuff if you're writing for Star Trek? If you're doing a Star Wars series, pick up a Star Wars book and actually read the Star Wars book. Or go to one of the conventions and sit down with the fans and with a notebook and write down notes. It would be smart business because we will probably be the ones to push your career down the road, when everybody else has left you,
1: <laughs>
10: what do you love about Starlog magazine? Growing up, reading the Star Trek content. Oh, Starlog! To me, and I had I hold on to them for like fifty-seven years, to least recently, because they were the comp- they were the magazine for my generation, for my for my tribe. To say we're not alone, and you know, I mean, because. Fish and wildlife or Sports Illustrated didn't mean anything to me. But if you... I said, I don't know about football, but if zombies evade the planet or come to life or aliens evade the planet, I know what to do. (laughs) But, (laughs) I mean, I know know how to deal with zombies or Martians, but I don't really know or or care to know anything about football or hockey or basketball. (laughs) So this meant... uh, Starlog meant a lot. It was like one of those things. It it let me know I wasn't alone, and it was something for not. Or or turn a tribe is something us nerds use for our society of fandom. And even today, I think we're coming out of uh, the pandemic. What my closing, what you said in the closing thoughts is, uh, a lot of people at three years couldn't get to um, convention. So if somebody, I mean, but. If you listen to podcasts and you live in a town or a city and you don't know anybody who's like you and who likes science fiction and fantasy and you like all this stuff, magazines like Starlog or even podcasts a day will let you know you're not alone. You might be that you might be the in your classroom. You might be the only kid who's liked T-shirts or. Like Batman or Superman or Spider Man or X Men, or you love, you see something in track or Star Wars, but you're not alone. You're not the freak, you're not the weird kid. You're thus, you have a, a group is out there of over 5,000 or 5 billion people in the United States alone. You just give it time when you, you know, and you'll find a it. Make enough money, and you can go to a show and find your 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 tribe. Like where a lot of people say, your family, your extended family. I should say.
3: In fact, I don't even know if people know if they like movies or not. What well, it's just they they sit there for two hours, and everything blows up, and you know. Uh, then when they come out, they got their money's worth because. They saw the White House blow up, or they saw a cow go up in a twister or something. While the plot is absolutely canned, I just saw this Dante's Peak. It's the same plot. I mean, absolutely the same plot in movie after movie. Dante's Peak is Jaws, you know, with a mountain playing the shark.
1: Our special guest for this episode is going to be another than... Captain Andrew McLaughlin. And where are you from? Glasgow,
6: Scotland. I I think that Kirk set the standard for a lot of Starfleet officers in the here and now. He was proof that you could break the rules and regs for good reasons and good reasons alone. That was not that was not the guy going, Oh, just fuck it for the sake of it. That was a uh, guy going. There's going to be loopholes in the Federation policy. There's going to be loopholes in the Prime Directive. We cannot, we cannot stand by and not intervene when a planet is facing danger. And that's what I love about both versions of Kurt. The 209 version and the now. And what I love about is that he he made a leap of faith, right? I'm not a religious man, right? I, I, I know there is religion in Star Trek and it's been very, very well done. But he took a leap of faith because he only had Sarek's word that Spock could come back from death. Any of us would have been like, our best friends died, our families died, they're not coming back. But because Sarek said to him, there is a way Spock can return. Kirk was willing to sacrifice his son, his starship, to make that happen. He had that charisma that a lot of people... Even in our modern day lives wish we had can we be stronger, can we be better? Can we stand up to our friends as much as we stand up to our enemies? And I would argue that all the captains had that. All the captains had the different things that made them great. Now, one of the best things ever is Kirk's forgotten a lot of things. He's the head of Starfleet, Uh, he's the Admiralty, he's forgotten a lot of the rules. He's forgotten a lot of the regulations. He's forgotten what it's like to be in deep space. He's forgotten what it's like to operate at Starship. And they say that to him, not just in the original motion series, but Star Trek too. It's very, very clear when Savick, who's a smart arse, is quoting rules and regulations, and he's are like, nah, it's fine. He's like, oh, it's the Reliant. Oh, it's fine. We're all friends here. He doesn't think to ask, wait a minute, what's Reliant doing in our sector? You know, what's going on with Reliant? You know she shouldn't be here. He forgets to ask a lot of the fundamental questions that made his gut instinct so strong. But what's better is that what saves his asses is as that knowledge comes back to him when he goes, wait a minute, the enterprise is badly crippled. There's nothing we can do. Oh wait a minute, we can get reliant to lower its shields. This is where I can outthink Can because he hasn't thought of it. And it goes, it goes to a big wonder though: is is Can really, really that more intelligent? Because, yes, he's genetically upgraded to be the perfect human being. His intelligence has been upgraded to be better than your average humans. But you still can't think in one, two, three-dimensional terms. Otherwise, that trick with the the Reliant Shield code would never have worked. Because surely the first thing Khan should have been going is, oh, how do I figure this out? I've got a starship at my command. Even Quinn, the second-in-command, says it himself. Um... You have Genesis. We can go anywhere we want.
1: As always, we're going to wrap up by talking about one of the advertisements in Starlog magazine, this one. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan Miniatures.
0: Okay, so we've got the miniatures of the ships, and it says, shown in actual size, one to 3900 scale starship, $3.50
5: each.
1: So this was to play along with the FASA game if you were playing the, the actual ship-to-ship combat and you wanted to have physical representations of ships. There's no doubt about it that this was just another revenue generator. Not opposed to it because we love collecting things. And especially the amazing work that FASA has done in their manuals of creating all these different lines of ships this was just another way to get a physical representation of all these different ships. Ships that we never seen on screen before.
0: Um, so they've got the Enterprise, the Reliant, uh, Klingon Battlecruiser D-7, Romulan Bird of Prey, USS Enterprise old style, oh and the Enterprise new. The regular one Space Station, Larson Class Destroyer, and Klingon Heavy Cruiser D-10. And then they've got um, action figures, twenty-five millimeter, one dollar each. Admiral Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Savik, Scotty, Uhura, Sulu, Chekov, Khan, David Marcus, Joaquin, Doctor Carol Marcus, Captain Terrell, Khan on Seti Alpha Five. Alpha. Oh, this says Alpha Seti. It's Seti Alpha Five. Klingon officer, uh, Klingon number one and Klingon number two, which weren't in the movie.
1: But it's interesting that. We had no action figures during this time period, but we're able. To, the closest thing was to get some some metal miniatures, and if you've never seen them before, they're actually made of lead. And the goal was to paint them. And they're little, little, tiny, little men. I never had the Star Trek ones. I had Dungeon and Dragons ones, and later on, they had the Marvel superheroes role playing game. I got those, but I've never had these ones before. But it's the closest thing you have to some depictions of S- Star Trek too, because this point, they were putting them in the Monster Maroons, and the ships were of the refit era. So even though Fossa role-playing is theater of the mind, it's designed so you could just envision yourself, you might have some maps to write on, this was kind of an accoutrement to the game.
0: Okay, so you've got the one with the Enterprise, with the 1-3900 scale Enterprise, with the metal miniatures, all eight of the bridge crew members. And then they've got one of the Reliant with the metal miniatures, the Regular One with the Metal Miniatures, and they got the Klingon Battle Cruiser with the metal miniatures. It's got seven.
1: See, I used to go to the post mall and go to the gaming store there and look at these and just dream about having them. And looking back now, again, with the the brainchilds of behind merchandising at, at Paramount, why didn't they just put these into Mainstream toy stores like Child World and Toys R Us, like TSR did with Dungeons and Dragons, like how do you miss that opportunity?
0: Yeah, to have them more available to people, so so they could have sold more of them. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. To Curiosity, more fun stuff to look at in Starlog magazine.
0: Thanks for listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us positive feedback on your podcast app. Your five star reviews are always welcome. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.
5: All I have to do is push this little red button. All I need to do is blow up the whole world. All I need to do is build a doomsday device. Don't have to tell
9: no
0: Did you like in the comics how the women look, look like they are naked? and Remember that body weird. stocking? Yeah, 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 the body stocking. And, and all, they like,
1: always wearing it on. I thought it was weird, actually. Yeah, to, to wear it on that
0: planet. Yeah, they didn't need to. And, and, and they made Marlon MacGyver's wear it, too. That's what I'm saying. <laughs>
1: Marla was primarily wearing it the whole time, like just walking yeah. around with it.
0: Yeah.